Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. I'm a feminist, but when I saw Michelle Dockery put that wig on, I realised that's the real reason I wanted to be a human rights (laughs) barrister. As part of our partnership with Netflix, I have the incredible hosts of MediaStorm, <laughs> just freshly nominated for an ARI Award. Don't mean to go on about it, but can't help myself. Matilda Mallinson and Helena Wadia joining me today. Morning, Deborah. Hello, Helena. Helena Matilda. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> today, we're dissecting the brand spanking new series on Netflix everyone's talking about it, that came out on the 15th of April. It's called Anatomy of a Scandal. So think of us as your local book club, except you don't even have to read a book. You just have to binge a TV show. It's the best day ever. Now, before we get started, this episode contains whopping great spoilers. So please stop right now. Thank you very much. If you haven't watched the series, press pause and come back when you have. We'll be here waiting for you. Also, a content warning. This series deals with sexual assault and the word rape will be used. So we just need to warn any listeners, if you haven't listened yet, but you're thinking, oh, I'll have a little sneaky listen first, this series and this conversation will involve those things. So listen to it when you're in a state to listen to it. Uh, It won't be graphic, but it will be there. So uh, Helena and Matilda, I'm a feminist, but I often think, do you know, Instead of a comedian and podcaster, I should have been a barrister. I imagine myself as a human rights barrister, obviously, and I often imagine myself as a barrister. Now, my mother also thinks this, um, but when I watch shows like this, I realise the real reason I want to be a barrister uh, is because I really want the wig and gown. Like, <laughs> really? When Michelle Dockery put that wig on, oh, It's powerful, uh, it's powerful. You literally dressing up as the patriarchy. It's like yeah, drag. I am, but I feel like I'm owning that man's world. Like they said, I, that women would never do this, and here I am being the best you barrister would be a in great Britain. Barrister. I would definitely take you as my barrister. I did think that maybe we should be allowed to have, you know, some slightly nicer wigs, though. Nicer I mean, wigs. Real, I'm a we being <laughs> well. Women. Do you know what though? The the older and grungier your wig the more you're respected because oh. the, you have the same wig for your whole career. And a new wig means you're a new barrister. What I would do is early on sort of scuff a bit of boot polish into it. <laughs> okay, but what would happen if I came in with like a RuPaul's Drag Race wig? 
Oh, I think you'd be asked to leave the court, Helena, and you would be done for contempt of court. I don't think it can be any wig. I think it has to be a horsehair. Although, is that now with animal rights being on the agenda? Do you think they're going to change those to synthetic? At the moment, it's got to be horsehair. If that's the reforms that they're making, if that's where they start when it comes to reforming these court proceedings, I'm going to have a real hissy fit. Well, that's why I'm a feminist, but... I'm a feminist, but when I saw Michelle Dockery put that wig on, I realised that's the real reason I wanted to be a human rights barrister. <laughs> Not to mention the robe, walking down those powerful corridors. Look human at me. rights? What? Yeah. Wielding law with my clothes um, and my clothes and wig. I'm a feminist, but when I should have been paying attention to a very important court case in the show, I was just actually thinking... How does Sienna Miller get her hair like that? What? It is, it's oh. perfect in every clip. I'm a feminist, but I think I would be open to opting out of voting in one local election, given <laughs> I'm in a safe seat, if I could have Sienna Miller's hair for the rest of my life. <laughs> I'd be like, like if I knew my vote wasn't going to matter, could I not just, I know women died for my right to vote. However. <laughs> if you had that. Sienna Miller's hair for life. <laughs> If you had that hair, you wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to cover it with a barrister's wig, Deb. Oh, that's true. It's a dilemma. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I didn't take it for granted, which I definitely should have. That being a Tory MP even makes Rupert Friend unfanciable. <laughs> I'm a feminist yeah. and a non-partisan journalist, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Rupert Friend is uh, is a very attractive man, but somehow mm-hmm. he's such a good actor that he made his character. James Whitehouse, oh my God, repellent! Yeah, it's something about yeah, I want, I want something to never about see his that face you again. know the that garb of totally entitled privilege that comes with certain public mm. roles that does just does just act like a bit of a turn off. That awful thing that when he was with his kids, he would be like, and what do Whitehouses do? Um, they always come out on top. It's just, oh, yeah, gross. Ooh, yeah. I was watching that thinking. Who are you building your children to yeah. be, you know, exactly like, like you? Like his mum raised him to cheat at Monopoly and um, she says something. She says something about when um, Sienna Miller, his wife, talks about issues with him lying and being dishonest and the mum's saying, well, you know, that's useful in politics. And she says, it's not lying, it's redirecting attention to more favourable facts. And you can just see how this kind of... Do you remember that letter that came out from Boris Johnson's college master at Eton saying that as a kid like he he had a cavalier attitude or he felt like he he seems affronted when criticized I'm reading it now for what amounts to a gross failure of responsibility and surprised at the same time that he's not appointed captain of the school like why would we not think that those attitudes we give to kids don't materialize in the house of commons well that's his character that's who he still absolutely is and I think what's played out in Anatomy of a Scandal is those same attitudes reflected in the story in the cabinet. I think it's meant to reflect the current state of play, yeah, isn't it? I think it? it is a commentary on on a pattern of entitled, privileged, thinking of one rule for them. You know, the show is quite dramatic and it's funny how... The House of Commons is portrayed in that same dramatic, almost farcical way. But actually, like, that's what it's like in reality. I literally feel the same way when I watch Prime Minister's Questions. Like the opera music playing. 
<laughs> yeah, that's what it actually is in real life, though. It's like, what is this theatre yeah. show? This, like, farce, this antiquated, weird, posh, old chum nonsense. But, you know, they play it out in a very yeah. dramatic way on the show. But that's the reality PMQs of it as well. is literally how I imagine, like, a politics class at Eton School. And it's just they reward such crap comebacks as well. It's just, yes. wow. it's so it, bad. Well, for your what, ego. what this show reminded me of, you know, when that, you know, when it's sort of like staying late and having drinks and bumping into each other in corridors and all of this sort of uh, stuff that leads to this initial affair, um, it really reminded me of. Do you remember the night? that the mace was stolen. You know, there's this big golden, I mean, it's so Harry Potter. It's like there's a big golden orb on a stick and some MP, young MP, I think protesting about Brexit or something, just stole the mace and ran out. Well, I was at the House of Commons that night and somebody in protest had stolen it and run off with it and there'd been, there was this, this hijinks and everyone was like, oh my God, oh my God, what's happening in the chamber? Everyone was running down the corridors to see the theatre and it was like school, laughing about it and like being outraged, pearl clutching, but in a kind of enjoying like way. And then as we walked back, I heard one of the men say to each other, and he looked like he'd never been outside of a public school or the Oxford Union or the House of Commons. And he said to this other chap, and he was a chap, uh, he said, oh, what's for pud? And he <laughs> said, oh, I think it's plum pudding or something like that. It was really public school food as well. And I was like, wow. Like there is a reason you are out of touch. You've never been anywhere but a room like here, a place like here, high ceilings, beautiful furniture, everything's telling you you're surrounded by marble, statues, ancient portraits, everything's telling you you're part of history and you're the kind of people that get to make the rules, influence, and you can make the rules in your favour. And you don't know anything about people who aren't like you. And that's how I felt about uh, James Whitehouse. He and his prime minister buddy, um, the reason the Prime Minister always kept giving him favourable positions is he owed him one from uni mm -hmm. because uh, a crime had been committed there and, and there'd been cover-ups between the two of them and therefore I always owe you, I'll always stand by mm. you no matter what happens. I think, yeah, what was interesting in the dynamic between the Prime Minister and James Whitehouse in this show is it it shows that that back-scratching, that what is seen by most people as corruption is framed in their minds as like honour and like standing by a mate when he's down. That's the height of morality. So they they see that as actually like an act of honour. I think that that was a pretty grim mm. reading I got from the show. You know, keep it all in the family. That's all what they do. It's interesting as well because, you know, there was that scene where this kind of, after Sophie Whitehouse finds out that her husband has cheated, but before she finds out that there was a, uh, allegation of assault this older kind of Tory type says to James and Sophie and says to Sophie's face oh boys will be boys he says something like oh once okay twice go away and <laughs> oh yes oh that's <laughs> right and he's yes and that was it he looks at Sophie and he says like look Sophie the storm's passed it's but a school it's over but you know it's not even it's not passed for Sophie it hasn't even started for Sophie she hasn't even mm. begun processing that her husband cheated on her, let alone that everyone knows. That's right. That's I'd forgotten about that. That the, it's a really old MP. Yeah, and he says, "My my wife said to me once, okay, twice go, twice away. go away. So I only did it the once. <laughs> it's just like, oh my god. And that's supposed it to be reassuring. Yeah. Oh my god. 
Um, yeah, that made me laugh. I think that Boys Will Be Boys Alliance is what keeps so much of this kind of terrible behaviour acceptable in the House of Commons and just acceptable for these kind of privileged people. Yes, it also reminded me of some people I knew at the Oxford Union, let's be honest. You know I was at Oxford with Matt Hancock. I didn't. Mm. Oh, I was wondering how long until Hancock's name. Was <laughs> oh yeah, yeah I, because, oh, well, I thought this because was because we we cannot unsee. Try as we might, we cannot unsee that footage or that photo Matt of Hancock, him and Gina Colladangelo was that yeah. her name? Yeah, getting it on in the House yeah. of Commons during a COVID <sighs> lockdown, and that's the thing. It's not just yeah. There's the affair, and then there's the hypocrisy of people in power breaking laws that they are at the keel of and then expecting to get away with it. Yeah, and actually I thought a lot about Matt Hancock's wife and you know how we see the political response to something like this isn't, oh God, how do we salvage the family? You know, what's best for the wife? What's best for his kids at this time? It's how do we paper over this from a political perspective. You know, it's the the press um, officer is obviously a very key character here. And it did make me think of and the way that journalists, every time Sienna Miller's character leaves the house, she has to face a scrum of journalists shoving cameras in her face, shoving questions in her face. And it was very similar with Matt Hancock's wife. If you were looking at the Daily Mail homepage, it was updating with a new, it was entirely plastered with, Hancock related stories and every five minutes there'd be a new article based on just photographers stalking Mrs. Hancock you know she leaves the house puts on a brave face and still picks up the kids from school like she was gonna just leave the kids at school <laughs> yeah and that's what scary. choice did she have <laughs> either she can <laughs> sob her way to the school gate or she can get herself together get to the school gate I mean oh and then get put her children in the car and go home? Like, those yeah. are her options. But I think you see that, yeah. The show shows you yeah, that grim Almost straight away vulture, in the scandal. Like, we have a husband confessing to a wife, but he only told her because he got caught. And so quickly, Sophie's feelings about her husband having an affair are completely cast aside for fears of his job, his mm. image. Like, she's throwing up in the sink and he's being briefed on how to... Make sure his life doesn't fall apart. Oh my God. What's the name of the guy that's his, it's, he's like a special advisor who's running around after him saying that most ghastly things, like the kind of th- things they say in the thick of it, uh, <laughs> uh, that's just completely insensitive to her and also just callous and completely nasty. Chris Clark is the character's name, played by Josh Maguire. Who was also yeah. in Cheaters. Yes, he's so funny. good in Cheaters. He's, he's, re- he's very like good. Him, yeah. and he, oh, he just represents in Anatomy of a Scandal this kind of need to plaster the cracks, keep everything above board, don't let uh-huh. anyone know the real truth. I mean, he is awful to Sophie Whitehouse, let's be honest. He is terrible, just no regard for her feelings at all. Do we hate him more because he is so spectacularly and deliberately and callously odious and knows it and enjoys it? Or do we hate more the hypocritical James Whitehouse who pretends to be a good guy and says, oh no, I would never do that. And on the stand, when asked if he's used the expression prick tease, 
And he goes, no, I would never do that. It's a presumptuous expression. It's a disgusting expression. I would never use it, but we we know that he has. We've seen it. How did you feel when James Whitehouse started to come undone? Was there any schadenfreude? Because in real life, we don't often see people like this go to court. It's very rare. I mean, it hasn't happened in this country for a long time. Like Partygate, apparently fines are going to be given, which means they've broken the law, which means it's criminal, which means the Prime Minister should go because the Prime Minister's not allowed to do anything criminal, but he's not going to. Boris Johnson being questioned by police over Partygate was the first time that a Prime Minister in office has ever been in a situation like that. Yeah, I can see the parallels. Did you get any schadenfreude from watching... Was there anything sort of exfoliated from watching James on the stand? Yeah, I think the like with the perfect aesthetics at the beginning, you know, Sienna Miller's perfect life that we kind of see unravel. But the Schadenfreude is is an annoyingly we see things unravel for her and we see things get better for him. Um, and yeah, there is some catharsis in her just blowing it all up at the end. I'm glad that the show gives us that. And but the the way it plays out, the reality of the court case and how he ends up getting back into cabinet, that feels like the true state of what it would be. Real life, yeah. Felt like that to me too. I think what was interesting about seeing James Whitehouse in court is that I think that he really starts by believing he's done nothing wrong. And then I think as it goes on, he maybe he starts to realize that not all of his actions have been good. Obviously, he never admits that, but I think you start to see that deep down he maybe realizes this. And I think that that goes back to kind of what we were saying about these people from these worlds who have lived so privileged and entitled that they feel like they can do anything like those scenes where they're partying in the in the Oxford um Libertines club yeah yeah. and um you know they they have grown up in not understanding the nuances of consent and I think I mean all the not even the nuances Helena or the basic the 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 big broad strokes the whole concept of the word no. We're not talking about any nuance here of I didn't read the signals, she froze. Yeah. Or, you know, we were both drunk. There was no nuance whatsoever. It was just he cold-bloodedly, absolutely 100% deliberately raped mm. her. Yeah. And she, there was no, they weren't on a date. There was no, there was nothing. He just, they were standing up. They were in a quad. She was a virgin. It was cold-blooded and it was horrible. And I don't know. It's interesting you thought that, Helena, that you thought he started to wake up and realise he was wrong. Did you think so, Tilda? I, that wasn't my reading, actually. My reading mm. was that he was a cold-blooded rapist and that he thought, he didn't think he'd done anything wrong, not because he didn't realise that it was rape and he didn't understand consent, but because he genuinely feels entitled to women's bodies, like he feels entitled to power and how he can't even deal with the times calling him arrogant. It'll be interesting to see if the listeners have got any feedback as to what they thought. There's that bit where there's a scene which shows the young now prime minister and the young James Whitehouse in their uni days in Oxford in this Libertines club where they're like pouring champagne away and they're generally acting very entitled and they're wrecking the room they're in. The young now prime minister, um, a waitress comes in and he grabs her breasts. You can see James looking at her 
and seeing that she's, you know, uncomfortable, distressed. shocked, upset, yeah. distressed. She's just been assaulted. But still dismissing it. But he is the only person that that goes mm, up but to her. Then his... He didn't stop it happening. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. He offers her money. Yeah, that. Oh, yeah, that's the he said, So sorry. yeah, he has a twinge of his conscience, but his moral response is to go and offer her a chunk of money, which to her is terrifying, and she just mm. runs. And it, it just shows that maybe by his own set of morality, he's moral, but like where are these morals being created? They're being created mm. by those entitled parents mm. who say you always come out on top, by those schools who mm. make you think that, you know, you're the best cut, you're cut from the best cloth. And then that's mm. what we see in the House of Commons when we have one rule for them. And that is materialising in policy. And that idea of anything can be bought. Mm. So this woman has not invited sex work. She's not a sex worker. But the idea is you can grab her, you can see she's distressed, you can pay her off and anything can be bought. And that that's... Yeah. That idea of, and that's all the cat backhanders, the kind of, you know, oh, contracts for people, the pay, the COVID payouts for, you know, family members, things like that, that goes on. It's like anything can be bought, anything can be covered up. Um, when I went to Oxford, I couldn't understand because I was a bit older, I was in my 20s. And I couldn't understand how these young people who had previously the year before been in school uniform were so, they'd be like, oh, I'm directing Cozy Van Tutti at the Oxford Playhouse. And I was thinking, why do you think you could direct an opera when you literally have just left school? Like, where's this coming from? And I'm not saying they couldn't and they were good and, you know, they'd had a lot of musical training. I'm not saying they were not good at the things they were doing. It was where do you get the confidence was fascinating to me. Um they were like, oh, I'm translating this classic from the Greek, you know, and then we're going to put a performance on and and it's going to be like this and everyone's going to be in, I don't know, fluorescent yellow leotards. And I was like, where are you getting this confidence at 18? And then one day I, I used to have my tutorials at the top of what we used to call a phallic tower where I used to go up. It was really House of Common stuff. In my college, there was this tower and it was a spiral staircase. You got all the way to the top and there'd be my tutor in there, just be me and him. And we'd be sitting there and I'd have to read my essay out and he'd just listen. And then he would quiz me, uh, I suppose, so that one can get, prepare oneself for the House of Commons. It's all set out for this or, or to become a barrister or whatever. And one day he said, I said something in reply and he went, well, that's a very good point. Why was that not in your essay? And I said, well, None of the critics had said it, and I wasn't sure it was right. And he said, you are an Oxford scholar. Your opinions are as valid as any opinion in the world. Whoa. And I was like, So dangerous. Oh. So dangerous to be I was like, that. oh, this is how they're all like this. Yeah. But it did change yes. me. It did make me go, right, this is how you have to play this game. You have to go in with your opinions, and you have to deliver them in an arrogant fashion and I've noticed that whenever I have to go into the House of Commons for something, I've been in with other people who've gone, oh my God, look at this place. And it makes you feel very small, like a cathedral is meant to make you feel the majesty of God. And you you feel very tiny. And I always just think, oh, this is just like my college, just like the JCR. It's just like the Oxford Union. I never feel intimidated in those spaces. And it's because you've spent three years at Oxford abusing the furniture. It's because you've jumped out of windows like that. You've pulled people in when they've come in late and they're smashed or JCR nights where everyone's ended up dancing on the tables or things like that. And uh, JCR, if you don't know, that means junior common room. But 
even like I don't even think to explain that because everything's in code. It's that all code infiltrates like that code is the rule by which the House of Commons runs. And so you make such a good point, Deborah, because anyone who enters that space and doesn't come from that background is immediately on a back footing because that is foreign territory, foreign culture in which other people there feel really at home and real confident. And so anyone coming into politics from a an underrepresented background is having to do so much more to get their voice heard in that debate and in that space. When we were talking about their own language and his image, James Whitehouse's image in Anatomy of a Scandal, it really struck me when James Whitehouse in, in some of the later episodes, possibly even the last episode, he says to Sophie, well, I told the core truth. And I feel mm. like the core truth mm. is their language. Oof. I feel like they're like, tell the core truth and then all the details around it, mm. you can lie. You can Every detail can be a lie because there's some core truth yeah, that exactly. you know, but then they don't have that information. So what you need to say is the core truth is this. Here's all the details that might make you think it's not the core truth, but it is. And then they can decide because they've got the same cards as you. What they do is they hold all the cards back and they only show you their core truth card, which mm. isn't the core truth. It's mm. not a truth at all. It's nothing like a truth. But no. to them, in their minds, they've justified it. Listen, guys, I'm really worried this is not passing the Bechdel test because we are obsessed with these male characters because <laughs> we hate them. But uh, uh, we need to talk about the female characters. Mm. Um, there are some really juicy roles here uh, for women. So... When did you twig that our QC, Kate Woodcroft, um, who really wanted to take this case, and we weren't sure why, uh, but we knew that she had a special interest, and we also knew she had a special interest in nobody digging up anything from the Oxford past because it wasn't relevant to this case, Mm. even though we knew he was a libertine, um, played by Michelle Dockery. When did you twig that, in fact, she did have an interest in this case because she herself was featured in the flashbacks as somebody called Holly Berry, who at Oxford had come into contact with James Whitehouse when he was a student. Yeah, I did not see that one coming. That is what my friends would call a twist plot because it's so much of a plot twist. It's just instead. <laughs> it's a, so much of a plot twist. It's not, you've got to twist it's the word. Twist, okay. disappointed I had it's to explain that one. Damn it. Deliver, <laughs> poor delivery. I mean, I, th- I thought, no, I thought that's what you meant, but you know. Thought I'd check. We are talking about the core truth after all. I saw it coming only just before I went, hold on a minute. I think Holly Berry is Kate Woodcroft and she's changed her name. She's changed her accent. She's changed her hair. And she's so much older that they don't recognise her initially. What was interesting about that was, you know, early on when we meet Kate Woodcroft's character and we see her kind of making quite tasteless jokes about rape with her aid, Um, You see she has this very clinical, very legal perspective on rape. And that, at the end of the day, is terrifyingly necessary. If your priority is getting prosecutions, then you're not handling something sensitively at all. You're going to be handling something very clinically. Um, Mm. and, And then to discover that she did have such high personal stakes. As feminists and journalists Mm. who, you know, on MediaStorm, you've done a whole episode on... Uh, convictions and it's very unlikely that if you go to court uh, with a rape case that you'll win unless you are in fact the accused it made me think a lot about like meeting for one of our media storm episodes we did cover this rape justice and um, I went into the crown prosecution service and I met 
Siobhan Blake, who's the lead prosecutor for rape, and also the the civil servants working with the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, and you can see how much, as individuals, they are working really hard and they really care about the issue, but they are trapped in a system that is wired totally wrong. And so, yeah, I think seeing that that tug in Kate Woodcroft's character between someone who is really high emotional stakes and someone who is just so cold and clinical when taking on this legal battle it shows just how this system is set up because and the show does well I think to demonstrate the barriers a case faces a rape case which by nature is very likely to hang on to testimonies you know and yet you have to persuade a jury and also the legal standard of consent I like that the show demonstrated you don't just have to demonstrate to a jury as a prosecution lawyer, that um, the victim did not consent. You have to demonstrate that the accused could not have reasonably believed the, that the victim consented. And that is mm. such an obscenely high standard that the reality is, is like the vast majority of rapists walk free. And Helena, you had this rant, you know, about how um, something the media needs to do better and maybe what the show does well is to demonstrate that being acquitted of rape is not the same as being found innocent. Like statistically, that cannot be the case. And yet yeah. the victim then leaves looking like a liar when the likelihood is is that people are not lying about these things. Yeah, in our third episode of Media Storm, this was, and we had a really wonderful chat with Gina Martin, who is the campaigner that made Upskirting Illegal and Leila Hussein, who is a wonderful activist and set up safe spaces for black women. We really, really focused in that we couldn't stress enough that a not guilty verdict doesn't always mean that they didn't do the crime. It doesn't mean that they're innocent. It simply means that there wasn't enough evidence to convict them. Particularly when they're a person with a lot of privilege, like James Whitehouse. Oh, it's, yeah, rich and powerful men get away with this far greater than anyone else. In the nature of assault cases, there is often not enough evidence because there's hardly ever a witness for obvious reasons, Hmm. but there's hardly ever also CCTV. Or even like in this case, there was bruising and uh, ripped underwear and things like that. And 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 he just said, well, that's that's how she liked it. Unsubstantial underwear. He said, oh, she had a habit of wearing unsubstantial underwear, which shows that when evidence does emerge it's generally looked at as an investigation into the victim and the victim's character and all these myths and stereotypes about oh she was asking for it that the mainstream media is so guilty and circulating even though like the court is trying to educate juries about these things like they still seep into public mindset and they still be weaponized very powerfully in court it's like the closing um the closing statement of the defense lawyer, who's, who's um, played by Josette Simon, who I thought, um, who I thought was great, she said to the jury, "Why rape a woman who is willing to have sex with you?" Which just shows, oh. like, oh, the ways that we are taught to view this crime. It's not. It's not always about sexual gratification. It's about power. It's about humiliation. It's oh, we only meet Olivia Lytton, the woman who, um, let's face it, was raped. Um, played by Naomi Scott. We only meet her in this context of her trying to say what's happened to her, which is how jury, how the public in a case like this would would encounter her. And it's so hard for her to Mm. um, fight her case. Like so much of the labor is, is on the victims to hold to account 
untouchable men, the things, horrific things they're doing. And that's just, yeah, they need more help. And honestly, the anger that you, I think, see coming through Kate when we're talking about at first, you know, she's she's doing this very legally. And then obviously when we realise her personal stakes, the anger and the frustration, oh, I feel that I felt that really hard. I feel that all the time when I think about these horrifying low conviction rates mm. and that the whole system needs an overhaul for victims. And what did you think about Kate? She's sleeping with someone else's husband. She does a mm. really, like, not just unethical and illegal thing by taking on a case in which she has an extremely personal stake. She didn't seem to be in the greatest position herself. Yeah, all, these, all the characters are flawed. And I do think that's important. I mean, the same with Sienna Miller's character. You know, she's she's in so many ways reflects the same privilege and entitlement of her husband. You know, when he uh, when he is acquitted and um, he's apologising to her, or may, yeah, he's apologising to her about how he said that he loved Olivia Lytton in court. He was like, mm. you know, I was just saying that for strategy. You know, I didn't love her. She didn't mean anything to me, but I just had to say that for strategy. It doesn't occur to her to be like, you were under oath. You lied under oath. That's kind of a crappy thing to do in itself but you know well it's it's, it's a not legal. an issue yeah. you could go to jail it's for illegal. it yeah that's not an issue to her yeah so so he all himself. our characters are flawed but it's not realistic to have like squeaky clean goodies versus horrific baddies okay so helena and matilda how does this series do you think reflect on the state of mainstream media and the law and do you have any hope for change? Well, we spoke a little bit about the role of the journalists, didn't we? The role of the media, especially in cases like this. The scrum, the media. Have you ever been in a media scrum like that, Matilda? Oh, I've actually managed to avoid those at most times. I know you have, haven't you? And you're so small. Oh, don't. <laughs> you know, I have experienced being shoved out of the way by big men and I'm like, look, I know I'm five foot one. I know I'm a woman, but I've got to get my camera in here as well. It's it's quite something. But I think I haven't done it in, um, you know, a high, as high profile a case as this one in Anatomy of a Scandal. But, you know, I did find it interesting that um, they would often ask Sophie the questions, as we mentioned before. And I do think that state of mainstream media needs to change. Mm. I think um, what this show does as well when we're looking at the role that the mainstream media has in um, tackling this massive problem of rape, basically the decriminalization of rape as the victim's commissioner um, infamously called it. I think that what it points out is these myths and stereotypes about, you know, women um, seducing young women, seducing older men at work to get to where they want to be or, you know, prick teasing about how um, in unsubstantial underwear, slut shaming, how that can actually materialize in real cases of violence and in how that can be used in real legal battles, that those missing stereotypes start with the mainstream media. And we really need to be less spineless when we talk about um, when and report on a system that is so that is wired so wrong, that is not delivering. I don't think we yeah, we need to take more of a stance in tackling those. 
we have to call it by its name. And I do think that the show does that um, because we see the court case, the show does that. But often in the mainstream media, they'll use phrases like underage women or sex with a minor. And those two things do not exist. There's no such thing as an underage woman. Sex with a minor is rape. So don't glamorize it. Just call it by its name. It's something the mainstream media really needs to do. And also to contextualize uh, the crisis. So each rape case, trial and conviction that makes it to press represents a fraction of the violence that is actually happening. And so it's helpful to highlight these wider statistics whenever possible, because that prevents the disbelieving of victims who don't see justice. Yeah, and you can see how the media jumps on this story, not because it's like, oh, here's a really important story about violence against women, but it's about the salacious, headline-grabbing scandal, the schadenfreude of watching these perfect lives unravel. You know, the show really does capture that grim, vulture-like media obsession with rape, which isn't about social justice and it isn't about protecting women. And finally, the um, the twist at the end, the, the twist plot at the end, which is Sienna Miller, uh, she knows that her, both the Prime Minister and her husband have done something illegal at Oxford and at the time he confessed to his uni girlfriend that he covered up evidence uh, around heroin misuse when someone jumped to their death, one of the libertines jumped to their death. So she, because that, that was a crime, she reveals that to the press. And for that reason, the Prime Minister and Sophie Whitehouse's husband, James Whitehouse, are both taken away to be investigated by the police. How hopeful are you that a conviction will occur there? Because I'll be honest with you, it looked like, wow, you know, and yes, yeah, she scandalised them and damaged their reputation, but let us be incredibly honest. I don't think they're going down for that yeah. because it's so old. There's not <laughs> going to be any evidence. It's just her I word. I think it's kind of the show to end it there, to give us that catharsis. But if they played it out, they know realistically they'd have to let it yeah, yeah. The fact that this show has kind of come out when our own prime minister is being investigated by the police and nothing's happened and he's still in office. When I saw that, I thought, oh, well, they're going to get away with it, aren't they? And this book must have been written a long time before then and this yes. show must have been in the can before Yeah, before it Partygate. feels painfully Absolutely. topical. It feels painfully exactly. topical for so many reasons. It's like the writers could see into the future and uh, we're, it, it's, it's, it's painfully zeitgeisty and we wish it weren't. We wish it were fantasy. Well, this is like sci-fi. Uh, in yeah. fact, <laughs> it's just our lives. I, I know it was a cathartic moment just seeing them in a police car, but it did strike me, you know, it's like... Yeah, they're not handcuffs or anything. They're just being taken in for some questions and, and the also, evidence is going to be so old. So we know what happens when politicians get caught out taking class A drugs in their youth. They were just experimenting and that's how they know that these drugs are really bad and they can crack down and throw all these less fortunate people in prison about it. So we know how that story goes. Listen to the Media Storm <laughs> episode on drugs, yeah. little pop there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, let's be honest, the judge is uh, on their case, if it does go to court, uh, is going to be someone who probably went to Oxford with them uh, <laughs> or was at the same college or the same school or, you know, oh, we, boys will be boys, pretty jolly good chap. We all got ourselves into scrapes when we were younger. Um, doesn't mean we can't run the country now. We hope things are going to change in real life, but I feel we're going to have to make them change. Mm -hmm. They're not going to change on their own because they mm -hmm. haven't yet. So uh, let me say again, Helena and Matilda, congratulations on the ARIA nomination Thank uh, you. for your 
uh, podcast only season one and you're already nommed so uh, fingers crossed for a win shock. I mean you're up against like women's hour yeah. and like the like, behemoths is that a mistake the behemoths <laughs> like, of the what? industry uh, so pick a great frock uh, for the award ceremony and get as many picks as you can on the red carpet and who knows maybe you'll come home with a trophy we look forward to more nominations and we look forward to deconstructing more Netflix series from a guilty angle as well as a feminist one uh, thank you so yeah. much uh, we hope you enjoyed Anatomy of a Scandal and our deconstruction of it and we will see you next time goodbye goodbye bye bye <laughs> <laughs>